This episode is brought to you by Borderless. Paying and managing remote workers can be a difficult task for companies. With the shift to remote work, companies are hiring talent from all over the world. But once they bring on that engineer from Turkey or Mexico, they quickly realize the challenges of paying them on on an ongoing basis and managing them effectively. There are various issues that companies have to tackle, such as foreign exchange fees, delays in cross-border payments, managing invoices, and trying to stay compliant with local laws. These complications can cause headaches and wasted time for companies as they have to navigate a complex and ever-changing landscape of regulations and compliance. The process of paying and managing remote workers can be time-consuming, costly, and difficult to keep up with. It can also be a major distraction from the company's core business operations. That's where Borderless comes in. Their extensive experience in worker payments and contractor management has simplified this process for companies. They take away all the complexity of managing international contractors, allowing companies to put their contractor or employee on their platform and handle everything else. They take care of paying global workers and drafting local compliant contracts so companies can focus on what they do best. They also include the communication, task management, and compliance. And the best part? Borderless offers real-time payment to contractors in over 150 countries across the world, allowing contractors to access their funds quickly and easily. Their SaaS business model offers competitive pricing with a monthly fee of $39 per contractor or $399 per employee. Don't let managing remote workers hold you back any longer. Let Look Borderless be your global workforce management solution at HireBorderless.com. That's HireBorderless.com. Hello and welcome everyone. I am Evan McCann and this is The Hard Part. This show is a deep dive into the strategies, founding stories, and behind-the-scenes insights from Canada's top founders, investors, and leaders. My guest today is Manika Blaine. Manika is an investor and advisor at Top Knot Ventures. Manika has over 15 years of experience in investment banking, private equity, and venture capital. She now works directly with passionate founders as they build, grow, and scale the iconic consumer brands of the future. In this episode, we discuss Campfire Capital, a fund she co-founded with Lululemon executives, her learnings there during the wind down and investments in companies like Figs and Cotopaxi, and nuances to investing in the consumer space. Please enjoy my conversation with Manika Blaine. Manika, I'd love to start with your time in investment banking. So you jumped into investment banking right out of school. Is that something that you were looking to do? Like, how did you kind of fall into joining investment banking? Thanks, Evan. So I didn't even know what investment banking was growing up or at the outset of my time in university. I was at the University of Toronto pursuing a BCom, so a commerce and finance program, which I chose because I was pretty math centric in high school and felt like 
business, finance, something along that wavelength would make sense for me. Um, I was fortunate to have a great mentor, Kevin Lee, who was just a really cool person in my life that showed me a path that I didn't know existed. I didn't really have any representation growing up of what an investment banker was or is what they do. I didn't know anything about it. And at the time when I met Kevin, this was back in 2001, I was in my first year of university. He was a VP at Morgan Stanley in New York. He's now the head of global banking at CIBC. So he was clearly a rising star back then. Uh, he was just so generous and kind with his time and told me about the work he did in advising companies on mergers and acquisitions and financing. It seemed really stimulating, challenging and lucrative. And so it piqued my interest. And, and that's really where it started. From there, I ended up applying to a bunch of banks, got rejected from a bunch of banks and was lucky to, in the end, land a role in investment banking. At the time, it was with a boutique investment bank that was based in Toronto that had um, an analyst rotation program that they were thinking of starting, really wanted to get out to London, moved out to London with them on the analyst rotation program. And uh, while I was there in the UK, and traditionally being with a Canadian boutique investment bank, the industries that I had been historically covering were mining, oil and gas. And being in London, I, I was exposed to many other industries. Um, and consumer and retail was one that really piqued my interest. And so from there, I was able to land a gig at Citigroup in their global consumer and retail investment banking team. And so that's how I got into consumer. That's um, how I would say my career really started excelling within the investment banking space um, was through, through, through that experience. And so I was in London, UK with City for three years during 2007 to 2010. So the good times and then sort of the bad times, the very bad times. You know, I was one, I was with one of those banks that was too big to fail and um, lived through a downturn, a recession. And I mean, the fortunate part about my experience in investment banking was that you know, after five rounds of layoffs, I found myself still there, which was great. It was really fortunate. I was probably in hindsight too, too cheap <laughs> to, to lay off. Um, and so I, I got myself, I was fortunate enough to stay on the team, but I was also really fortunate that because we'd eliminated so many individuals across our global team. So we were in New York, London, and, and Hong Kong. So consumer retail was covered in those um, from those three regions, I think our team went from 90 professionals in those three geographies to about maybe 30 to 40 after like five rounds of layoffs. So there was no middle layer. There were very few VPs, directors. If you're an analyst or associate, you'd be working directly most times with the managing director and you'd be working on many more transactions, small and large, or because there was just the deal flow hadn't slowed down from an M&A advisory perspective um, and on the debt financing side, but there were just fewer of us. So I got a lot more exposure within those few years than I probably would have had otherwise. Um, and it was great. I, I, I think what I found I enjoyed the most in my time there wasn't so much the big M&A, like the Kraft Cadbury transactions or the Heineken FEMSA or you know some of these huge deals cross-border deals were really fun to work on, but where I had the most fun was when we were working with a large conglomerate, large company that was looking at early stage companies and looking for growth opportunities via strategic acquisitions in more of the early stage space. Um, 
and so that's where I, I had the most fun was researching younger companies, trying to understand how how fast they were growing, reasons for their growth, um, headwinds, tailwinds, all that kind of stuff, and and why it made strategic sense to the potential acquirer. That's where I, I had the most fun. I think that's probably where I realized eventually I'd end up working with smaller companies. <laughs> so and and you and you have eventually done that. So we could definitely when we get to that part, touch on that a bit more. But after London, you move back to Toronto and you join Onyx, private equity firm. Well, you know, jumping from IB to private equity is kind of like a stereotypical path. But why did you move back to Toronto and why uh, Onyx in particular? I, mean, I, I had a great run in London. I think I probably could have stayed if if I wanted to. But I think at a certain point, I realized that, you know, from a relationship standpoint, if I eventually wanted to be in Canada... I didn't want to stay in Europe, in London too long. Just, you know, I wanted to start building more relationships in in North America. So I think that was, that was probably one of the key reasons. Also, just personally, you know, I'd spent three years at this point overseas. What started out to be a six-month analyst rotation program turned into like, gosh, I've been here for, for over three years. So I, I felt Canada was pulling me back personally. You know, my friends, I was starting to see friends get married and, you know, go through those phases in life and uh, I didn't want to be left out. <laughs> I miss my family. So I think that's probably why I eventually moved back or, or what what uh, was the catalyst. But the move to private equity, you're right, is a typical one. Um, I certainly, yeah, I mean, coming back to Canada initially did go into investment banking, actually. So I, I didn't really land right at Onyx right away. I, I did come back to investment banking role, but very quickly um, was approached by a recruiter about joining uh, OnCap, Onyx's mid-cap private equity platform. Um, and to be candid, because I lived and survived through the downturn in London, when I was investment banking in London, I didn't even try and recruit for any private equity roles. I was just happy to keep my job, right? Like that was the state of the union. So when I got a recruiter call about, hey, do you want to join you know, the mid-cap private equity platform for Onyx, which you want to interview. Honestly, I was sort of like, well, I should just take the interview. I mean, I don't even know what these interviews are like. It might be kind of fun. And then months go by because these interviews with private equity firms can sometimes span weeks and months, the various case studies that you need to do in the interviews. And as I kept progressing through the various phases, I was first of all, really enjoying the work and the case studies. And it was giving me a feel of what my life would be like as an associate in a private equity firm. Um, but I was also just kind of surprised that I kept making it through the next <laughs> So when I finally got the offer, I, I had to take it. And it was, it was exciting. It was a little, I felt a little sheepish about it because at this point I'd been back in Canada and I had joined another investment bank and I had only been there for a few months when I got that call from the recruiter. So I felt a little bit bad about that, but, um, but eventually landed at Onyx and it was, it was, it was a great spot. I was there for almost five years. I started on the investment team for OnCap, which is their dedicated mid-cap private equity platform, and then had an opportunity to fundraise with Onyx partners. Um, It was going to be the first time, this is 2013, 2014, it was going to be the first time that Onyx was going to do fundraising in-house rather than hire a placement agent. We'd become large enough at that point. And um, and I think that that was what they wanted to do. And so they canvassed, you know, the senior associates directors, who would want to take this on, you know, work with the head of investor relations um, to, to fundraise with uh, 
an investment team hat on and and it was a great opportunity and I'm really glad I took it. On the topic of fundraising, you start Campfire Capital and did you start that in Vancouver? So I guess you might have moved during that time, but you started that with some Lululemon executives. What was that experience like? I feel like that's a really interesting Yeah, it is. I mean, how it all came together is really interesting too. So yeah, I guess one thing I should share is between my time in between investment banking and private equity, there was a part of me that wondered if I was going to come back to Canada. You know, yes, the typical path is going from investment banking to private equity, but wouldn't it be kind of cool to work in-house corporate development, M&A, business development for a large growing Canadian retailer? That was sort of something that was on my mind when I was in London. Um, This was, you know, 2009, 2010. And as I thought about that, the number one company I would want to work for was Lululemon, right? This was 2009, like pre-see-through pants incident, you know, pre, you know, disparaging remarks from a certain founder, certain Bloomberg, you know, it was, it was before all that. So this little Vancouver company called Lululemon was, you know, on the scene and creating a real splash, creating a real movement, creating a real category and community. And um, it was certainly a brand that resonated with me as a consumer. And I had, <laughs> I decided that if I was going to not go from investment banking to private equity, and if I was going to work for a retailer, that's the retailer I'd want to work for. And so it was early days of LinkedIn and I pretty much spammed anyone I could find that worked at the store support center in Vancouver to be like, hello, here I am. And all of my infinite experience, like it's cringeworthy now as I think about it, but, uh, but yes, I did that. And any recruiter that I would speak to, you know, when I would talk to them about how I'm coming back to Canada and thinking about my next role, I would always give Lululemon a little bit of a spot and say, Hey, by the way, if you know anyone that's there that would want to recruit someone with my background, I'd be super interested. And so I was just super keen and I didn't hear back from them initially. And, um, about six to eight months into my gig at OnCap, at Onyx, I, I got a call from the woman that, uh, was a director in the business development team and, you know, her and the CFO and, Various people within Lululemon, I guess, had received my CV or heard about me or, you know, just sort of, you know, reached out and said, would you want to apply for for a role here? We're looking to hire someone in the business development team. So this was April 2011. I, I was very candid with her and I'm like, look, I've only been here like less than a year. I can't leave and I'm about to close my first couple of deals but I would love to fly out to Vancouver and meet you all. Like, I'm not going to take the job, but could I, could I pay for my own ticket? Could I come out and meet you? And she was sort of like, you're crazy, but sure, come on over. <laughs> so I met them all in 2011. Um, and that was, that was the, the reason why I met them all. And like I said, I didn't take the job, but I stayed in touch over the years. And, um, you know, in their world in Lululemon, what was happening is a bunch of the executives were starting obviously do very well stock price appreciation when a company goes from you know 150 million to one and a half billion within a few years people certainly um you know do well and so there there was a bit of that they they had you know money that they could invest but there was also something really interesting happening in the backdrop which was what i call d2c wave 1.0 so digitally native brands were starting to emerge um the Warby Parkers of the world. And as they were going from strictly online to stores, they would start thinking about who they could recruit to either invest alongside the tech VCs that didn't know too much about physical retail, 
who could sit on the board, maybe guide and advise them as they made that foray from strictly online to stores. And Lululemon was just known universally for producing incredibly productive sales per square footage, you know, consistently ranked behind Apple, Tiffany and Coach, um, you know, really ranked highly on that basis. So executives within Lululemon would be getting these calls from emerging retailers that were online, e-commerce players, um, and asking for, you know, do you want to invest? Do you want to sit on the board? And um, <laughs> the person that I that I connected with within business development that I would have worked very closely with, she would share some of these opportunities with me and she'd say, hey, like we're looking at this business and do you want to take a look? And similarly, when I would look at early stage things, I would share them with, with her and um, kind of realized at a certain point that with all the experts like the expertise and the networks and the connections of these various individuals, wouldn't it be kind of fun to create a fund, right? So like the Andreessen Horowitz of retail was sort of what we were aiming for. And, and that's, that was sort of how it came together. It was, it was that we all had a, a passion for early stage. I think a lot of the executives within Lululemon remembered when Lululemon was still small and how it got to be quite big. And I think maybe a lot of them missed that piece of it, you know, and were keen to share what they had learned from their experience with, with the rising stars that were amongst us. Um, and so that's sort of where the idea of Campfire Capital came from, um, really meant to be a venture capital firm backed by the industry for the industry. And at this point, too, this was 20, 2014, right, 2015, there were very few players in the venture capital space that were focused in consumer. Most of them were tech focused. That's typically you know, where venture capital firms sit on the spectrum. And so there weren't, there weren't, aside from, you know, Kirsten Green, Forerunner, maybe a few others, it was still really a novel idea to be a venture capital firm that focused in consumer. Um, and so, and so that's where, that's where Campfire came from. I, I moved from, from Toronto to Vancouver at the end of 2014. Um, my co-founder and I lived together for the first six months of Campfire. Uh, you may or may not know, but it takes a hot minute to raise a venture capital fund. And we ended up raising $32 million US. And so that took us 18 months. And so, you know, I rented out my home in Toronto and she rented out hers in Kitsilano. So it took a while for us to bring it together. But by the end of those first six months, we managed to have our first close. It was a baby close, about $5 million. And those first investors or limited partners, if we're using fund lingo, there were 33 current and former Lululemon executives, including our two additional general partners in our fund, Christine Day. She was the former Lululemon CEO and John Curry, the former Lululemon CFO. And, and so that was the first close where we brought in the Lulu squad and several other consumer retail executives uh, across multiple other brands. And, and we'll circle back to that, but you also did an interesting stint at a family office in Vancouver, as well as was a venture partner, in another firm. And I, I'm just very interested because like the investment experience there is just really deep, right? Like you do IB, you do private equity, you, you raise your own fund, you work for a family office, you work as a venture partner. I just feel like I haven't really spoken to too many people that have done all these different things from an investment standpoint. So I'd love to chat about those two experiences, but also just like how, how has that like morphed or changed you as like an investor? Today? Yeah, it's such a great question. Um, 
Well, so the family office, I worked for the Husseins for three years. Um, they're a large family here in Vancouver, uh, the family that built and sold Interwest Resorts. They were an investor in Campfire, so that's how I got to know them. They were on our LPAC, which is our, our limited partner advisory. It's like our, our board. Um, and they had a close relationship with John Curry. So as I just shared, two of my partners within the GP at Campfire were the former CEO and CFO of Lululemon, Christine Day and John Curry. And so John Curry knew the family really well because prior to joining Lululemon, he was CFO of Interwest. So he knew Joe Hussein really well. And, um, and so that's how that connection came about. Now I got to know um, Joey, who was the individual that sat on our LPAC really well as well. Um, and so when Campfire was coming to an end, um, or starting to, the family approached me about, about working within their family office, which they were starting to invest more capital within the early stage space, looking at various sectors, including consumer. And um, I thought it was a great opportunity. A, it allowed me to continue to run Campfire. At this point, we had decided to move to a wind down. We had invested in a few businesses and um, not sure if we're going to cover that chapter here or not, but uh, for, for various reasons, decided to, to put the pen down on there from an active investment point of view. But I was still babysitting a dormant portfolio, right? Like we still had a few active investments that I had to um, continue to monitor and report on and that sort of thing, sit on boards. Um, and so it was a great opportunity for me to be able to do that, yet at the same time, um, start something new. And, and working for a family office was really intriguing for me as an investor because most of them operate kind of like a black box. You're not, there's no website, you know, there's no, um, they don't, not like other venture capital firms where there's a dedicated section on your website with, these are the things I've invested in. You know, it's, it's pretty quiet and for good reason, right? Family offices for the most part don't really want to be known. They, they want to maintain a level of confidentiality and that sort of thing. So, um, so I, I thought it was a great opportunity a, to work with a group that I developed a relationship with, that I had a great rapport with, that I really respected, admired, and and B, for me to understand just how a family office, you know, works from the inside. And so it was, yeah, it was a great experience for me as an investor. Um, it was a great opportunity for me to continue to strengthen my relationships in Vancouver, because um, they are a very well-known family here. Um and then, and then on the venture partner side at Brand Project, that was a great opportunity because I'd known the team for a really long time. As I'd mentioned before, when we started Campfire, there were so few players that were focused in consumer, in Canada especially, and, and Brand Project was one of them. And so I'd really long admired the team and what they'd done there. And they were raising their first capital fund. They'd had a studio previously, and they were just trying to wrap up the fundraise for their first fund. So you know, the founder approached me about, you know, why don't you come on in? You know, you've been sitting on the bench for a while, like get your feet wet again and come help us raise our fund, you know, invest in a couple of businesses, see how it goes. I was pregnant with my second baby at the time. So I, my, my two kids are 18 months apart. So I was like, okay, I don't want to bite off more than I can chew here, but why don't I join in a venture partner capacity and uh, I'll help raise the fund. So I, I brought in several of my investors from Campfire joined the Brand Project Capital Fund One. Um, so that was fun. And then I got to lead two deals and that was fun as well. So I would say it, even though the title was venture partner, I very much felt like a partner for those 
this, you know, the, the year or so that I was there, but it was a, it was a great way to, for me to maintain my own flexibility as well. And, and then take a step back when it, when it felt right too. And I love to circle back just to campfire on that kind of thread of fundraising. You know, I think there's a lot of top, there's a lot of information out there about how should founders raise money, but how should like a, a VC fund or a fund raise money? Do you have any like insights there on like how to effectively raise money? You've done that a few times and also love to chat about campfires. Uh, you had some pretty heavy hitter investments and would love to. So I'll take your first one. How does a venture capital fund raise money? <laughs> Good question. First of all, in my experience, raising a first-time fund is really challenging, um, and for good reason, right? A first-time fund, it's typically the first time that partners are working together, you know, you're executing on potentially a relatively new strategy, you don't yet have a track record to demonstrate that it's going to work, and uh, and so if you're going to do it, be prepared that it's going to be hard at the outset. But I would say what was really helpful for us was that we had a great anchor in our fund. Uh, we, we had two anchors that were really important. So the first anchor, and I know we just covered this briefly, that we were backed by several Lululemon executives that formed, you know, the core of, we actually we called it the core retail network initially. And so we were backed by 33 current former Lululemon executives. So not just the former CEO and CFO, but the head of logistics, um, the head of real estate, um, you know, recruitment and talent and um, product brand operations. We had such a strong contingent of current and former Lululemon executives and then a bunch of other retail operators across North America that we'd all built strong relationships with join us in that first uh, close as, as our initial anchor. So, David Siegel, I'll give him a shout out. He's founder of David's Tea. I had met David when I was chasing him around to invest when I was at OnCap and we built a great relationship. We're still close friends and we look at deals together today, which is fun. And I approached David about what we were doing and, hey, would you want to invest? Would you want to be a part of this core retail network? He was like, absolutely so cool. Uh, he wanted to be a part of it. So David Siegel, there's Aldo Bensadoon, the founder of Aldo. And then Charles Chang from Vega, who had relationships with a few of the Lulu execs that were part of it. So he came on board. There were about a dozen or so retail operators across North America that joined us. And then some friends and family too. I'll give a shout out to Naresh, my uncle's best friend, who, who had just at the time sold his retail software business. And he was our first investor. He was about a million dollars of that $5 million baby clothes. And, and so that was, that's the first thing, you know, make sure you've got a good anchor, um, you know, in the form of whatever that means to you, whether it's friends, family, industry execs, you know, your own general partners. For us, it was our core retail network with a side of friends and family. And that was the second. Um, and then this, the second really important anchor was that we had BDC. Um, so BDC Capital's largest Canadian yeah. institutional investors, um, certainly within venture capital. And they were a $6 million US commitment in our fund. Um, they were $6 million contingent on us achieving a minimum viable fund size of 30 million. So they weren't exactly the first dollar in, but you know, and it took them a very long time to get comfortable with the idea of backing our fund. 
But by the time that they did, it was certainly really helpful for us to go out and get capital from other family offices, high net worth individuals, even approach other fund of funds and um, various other groups that could put in meaningful amounts. So I would say tips and tricks for success in raising a first time venture capital fund would be, yeah, make sure you're anchored, whether that's in the form of a strong GP or other, as well as a strong institutional investor, if you can get that. It'll certainly make make it go a little a little faster. But for us, it's still it's took eighteen months. Like it it was a slog. There was, um, I was actually at an event last night and and ran into a couple of folks that are starting first time funds. Uh, I'll give a shout out to Mark Trevitt and um, Maria Pacella. She's not raising a first time fund, but she's raising right now. And and both of them were joking about it. I guess they had heard me say at some point along the time time frame of raising campfire capital that raising a fund is like getting punched in the face every day. And it it really is (laughs) like, it's hard to raise capital for a company, you know, like people raising a seed round or a series A, series B, whatever, but at least you can tell investors exactly what they're investing in. Whereas raising capital for a fund, especially in an uncertain environment is like, so (laughs) why don't you just go ahead and commit? you're not going to know what you're investing in yet, but I'm going to try my hardest to make a great return for you. I mean, that's pretty much it, right? It's a promise. So it's, it's tough. Raising a fund is tough, but um, look, I think with, as with anything, it comes down to people as well. I think the people that did say yes to us and invest in Camp Fair, they really believed in the people that were around the table, our, our goals. And I think the other important thing when you're raising a fund is just start doing you know, by the time that we held our final close, we had already invested in four companies, right? So as best as you can start investing, even if it means that you have multiple closes and you've got to true up investors, right? As investors come in, you've got to kind of do various true ups, which can be a nightmare from a financial administration perspective. But I think it's important to just start doing what you said you were going to do. Um, You know, you wanted to invest in this category. This was your thesis. Go do it. And from a first time fund, you know, I think the performance is pretty great. Like back figs, Frank and Oak, Cotopaxi. Can you talk me through about, about how, like, how did you find these opportunities? How were you able to invest in them? And I feel like just like those three brands alone would have probably returned the fund at least. <laughs> yeah. Um, sourcing. Yeah. Sourcing is really important for us. It came down to our networks. A big thesis we had with Campfire was that because of who we had involved both within the GP as well as within our broader LP, our investor network, we would see the best deal flow. That was our thesis, you know, because of who we were and the knowledge networks expertise that we could bring to our portfolio companies, other VC firms would want to include us. They would open the door. Um, And that, that turned out to be true, right? So in the case of FIGS, actually I'm having dinner next week in LA with Trina, one of the co-founders and the current, the CEO, Trina and Heather, the co-founders of FIGS directly approached Christine Day. Right, she's within our GP. She's former CEO of Lululemon. They directly approached her. Christine brought the opportunity in, and I mean, it was it was amazing. It took us a while to get comfortable and you know really do our homework on it and and on the founders and yeah, obviously the opportunity. But but we got there and we led their Series A in 2016. It was a five million dollar round, and Campfire was so we were two million dollars of the five million dollar round. So that was that was through our networks. Um, Figs, or that was Figs. Cotopaxi was an example of, I'll give Kirsten Green a shout out for this one, the, the founder of Forerunner, which is a storied, very 
reputable uh, consumer-focused fund out of San Francisco. So Kirsten was an existing investor in Cotopaxi, and she introduced us to Davis Smith, one of the founders of Cotopaxi. And they reopened the Series A for us. And, and Davis just saw extreme value in what we could bring and the people around the table, you know, Christine in particular, um, was super helpful um, to them. And and so, yeah, they reopened a round that had already been closed to accommodate us. And then in their next round, their Series B, we came in for an even larger amount. Yeah, we, I think we were about 700,000 when we snuck into the, the Series A. And I think the Series B, we were one and a half million. Um, yeah, our check size typically was two to two and a half million. Um, and so for Frank and Oak, that was Boris Schwartz uh, from Version One Ventures. So Boris came, shared that opportunity with 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 a few of the members of, of our GP, and um, and yeah, that was one where we we put in a smaller amount initially, and then a larger amount later. And yeah, so really from for us, what we thought was going to happen happened in the sense of. We we're going to source opportunity through our networks, through the fact that VCs would be more than willing and wanting to, to open doors for us and let us in. So, Manika, I know that you and your partners haven't spoke much publicly or on the record about how Campfire ended up in Wind Down. Oh, here it comes. But I know we've ref- <laughs> but I know we've referenced it here in our conversation a couple of times. What, if anything, do you feel comfortable sharing about that chapter and how it came to be that your first time fun ended up in a wind down? I knew you were going to go there. <laughs> But thanks for passing me the baton and letting me share what I feel comfortable sharing, Evan. Um, okay, look, I get asked this question a lot. And from my perspective, I think there are typically two reasons why a first-time fund will fail, right? The first being that they're unable to raise the capital required to execute their thesis. That wasn't the case for us. Um, we We had raised sufficient capital. Um, I think the second reason why most first-time funds don't succeed or end up in wind down is that they're not able to execute their strategy and source the right deal flow. And that wasn't the case for us either. The first deal that we led, you know, happened to be at a $20 million valuation and IPO'd five years later for about a cool three to $4 billion. So pass that one, pass that test too. Um, I think really what it comes down to, and, and I referenced this earlier when I talked about why it's so hard for first-time funds to raise capital, it's just the people involved have never worked together in this type of specific capacity, you know, and I think partnerships aren't easy and, and they don't always work out. And, um, you know, I don't, there's no blame to ascribe to any any particular person. It's just sometimes it's really the people side of it and you might have the best idea and you might, you know, clearly there was a need. If you look at the sheer number of consumer funds that exist in the market today, especially in the last couple of years, I mean, we were certainly ahead of our time um, with respect to the need for a consumer focused fund. And we were able to source the right deal flow. It's just, yeah, not all partnerships work. I think for me, if you're giving me any airtime to talk about, about that chapter, what I would share is that, even amidst the greatest tragedy of, at the time, what felt like the greatest tragedy of my professional career, you know, I think it's how you walk through fire that defines you, you know, and I think for me, when we moved to a wind down in Campfire, um, at this point, we had invested about 25% of the capital 
that we had raised. We raised a $32 million fund, invested about $8 million of it across four companies and, you know, the typical fees, that sort of thing. My partners and I decided that we would no longer call any more capital. Um, and I'm not just talking about capital for new investments, but we made a decision not to call any more capital for management fees. You know, so even if you are in a typical fund wind down, most LPs allow for you to draw management fees on invested capital. We didn't do that. Um, we didn't draw any capital at the time for any fund admin, you know, sort of handled the annual audits and quarterly fund reporting fees, all the financial administration that comes with, um, you know, fund admin, we, we just swallowed that. Um, and we endeavored to get out of our investments as, as quickly as we could, but we had a hard, fast rule on, you know, we didn't want to take pennies on the dollar in, sec in secondary sale positions, even though we had opportunities to. We wanted to ensure that if we were going to get out of an investment sooner than the actual you know, exit, whether that be a sale to a strategic or IPO, whatever, that we would do so if it was going to, at the baseline, deliver capital back to our investors. Um, and, you know, look, we we exited a position or two earlier than we would have liked. Um, but at the same time, like Cotopaxi is a great example. We stuck with it until the day that Bain Capital came in, which was just 18 months ago. And, uh, and ended up doing a large growth equity round, Bain Capital, the large growth equity round, which gave us the liquidity um, to sell our position to them. And, and we essentially returned pretty much most of the capital that we'd drawn just from that one exit alone. Um, and then, you know, a couple of the other positions, one in particular, we exited sooner than we would have liked, uh, but we still made a return for our investors. So in the end, despite the fact that it ended in wind down, our fund's performance was strong, according to PitchBook, and I had to look this up the other day to make sure that uh, that it was the case. But when compared across all of the other 2015 North American venture capital funds, Campfire Capital's net DPI actually ranks in the top quartile. And for those of you that don't know, DPI is a measure of distributions to paid in capital, so inclusive of all fund expenses and fees. And look, that's something I'm very proud of, you know, that my partners and I were able to do together. It was truly a remarkable outcome for an otherwise unfortunate circumstance. And I mean, I had an investor when we had that final um, email that I sent out to all of my 101 investors, letting them know, hey, guys, we finally sold Cotopaxi, ready to return capital back to all of you. You know, I had investors send me wine, write me beautiful thank you notes. Because um, you have to realize we went through, like the wind down was initiated in April, May of 2017. We only sold Cotopaxi in the fall of 2021, right? So like it took me a hot minute. And I, I had investors that were just so thankful for the fact that, you know, I, I we, we did the right thing in the end. You know, my partners and I that, that supported me in the wind down effort, um, we, we were able to stick to what we said we were going to do and, and do that. And, and yes, it resulted in, yeah, I had one investor tell me, I feel like I'm wearing a pair of jeans that I haven't worn in a few years. And I just found a hundred thousand dollars in the pocket. So thank you. <laughs> Cause I had written this off. I thought you guys were in wind down. We, I wasn't going to get a single penny back. I figured that you would have gone on to do other things and just sort of, and it's like, no, of course I wasn't going to do that. My own capital was in this fund. My partner's capital 
relationships that I had for decades, family relationships, I wasn't going to not do the right thing. And so that for me was, that's the silver lining, right? The, what seems to be the greatest tragedy of your professional life, you know, pops up, you're going through that chapter. Just remember that it's an opportunity for you to really rise above and do the right thing and hopefully deliver a base outcome. <laughs> and then I love to chat about like what you're working on now with Top Knot Ventures. And I guess the kind of underlying theme there too is like throughout your career is like this focus on consumer retail, that interest there. I guess, why has that always kind of been baked into you as a person, as an investor? Um, I'd just love to learn a bit more about that because it's definitely unique, as you've mentioned a few times. Yeah, I mean, with Top Knot, it's interesting. I only just turned my website on like a month ago. I, I've been doing it for almost a year and uh, didn't have a website or anything. And I decided I should probably, probably do one. I think for me, Top Knot was this opportunity for me to bring together my background in investment banking, private equity, venture capital, and work closely with founders, you know, so I no longer really have investors. This is me doing my own thing. And how can I be the ultimate partner, um, you know, support to founders, especially first times, first time founders as they navigate, you know, these really important phases, uh, whether it be capital raising, whether it be, a sale, you know, founders get approached pretty early sometimes with with opportunities for exit and um, just really helping them think through that, evaluating that business development, um, you know, that all that stuff that I would do with my VC hat on. I'm having a lot of fun doing it now, but without other investors around, you know, sort of being the one that can help advise founders and, and really play that role for founders, like really work for founders. And on that focus with consumer, I guess, like, what are some nuances in the space that you, you've you noticed that, like, hey, like, this company has it or, like, you know, this company is going to take off? Like, if you use Lululemon, for example, it's like a clothing brand, but how do they build, like, that deeper, you know, response where people just, like, love the brand, get behind it? I guess, like, what are some of the nuances that you look for? It's like, okay, like, this is a great business. They're growing. But how do you know that they have that special sauce, so to speak. It's such a competitive industry. The barriers to entry to a certain extent are so low, you know, anyone can probably produce a pair of pants, right? Obviously there's technical aspect. And I don't, I don't mean to undermine product at all. Product is so important. It's key. Um, but I think really for me, what it comes down to are the core values of, of, of the company. Like what does this company stand for? What are they trying to do that's different? You know, who are they attracting around them as consumers and why is there loyalty? Is this, is this something with staying power? Is this something that has the opportunity to really be a longstanding brand? Right. Um, so I, I pay a lot of attention to that. I've learned to pay a lot of attention to that. It wasn't always the case. Um, cause I am very numbers oriented, but I've learned that if you are a company that truly does have core values that inspire the world, you're going to be able to attract the right team around you. You're going to be able to win customers, loyalty, affections, and you know, you're going to be able to really create a community, which is really important as you grow. And so that's something I pay a lot of attention to. Um, I think the other piece of it that I've learned is crucially important in the early stage 
are the founders, right? You're going to have an idea and it's going to pivot like 10 times until you get it right, you know, and, and as an early stage investor where I typically come in, which is you know, pre-seed, seed, series A, you know, you're still at that point where you're not yet a huge success. And, you know, you may have a bit of product market fit, but it's still a really long way to go. And so, you know, do I believe that these founders are going to be able to adjust quickly, going to be able to react, going to be able to, to grow and learn and be coachable, be open to, to growth and change and, you know, an ever evolving dynamic. And you most recently, you just had an event that you hosted in New York and you brought together a bunch of South Asian consumer founders, investors, some people from ClassPass, et cetera. Can you talk a little bit about that? I saw that on social. Yeah, that thank really cool. you. That was really fun. So I'm a part of I'm a part of a collective here in Canada. There's 16 of us. It's called uh, the Wender Collective. I'll give them a bit of a shout out right now. Um, some of the individuals involved that you may know of are Joanna Griffiths from Nix and Jenny Bird and the founders of Smythe, Andrew and Christy, Catherine Fromm, who was Nix's earliest investor. A bunch of us. So there's 16 of us involved and including me and, and they invite, invited me to join just earlier this year. And I've done two deals with them. And one of the most recent ones is Paro, which is Umaime Sharani's business. She's out of New York. She was employee number three at Glossier. And she's got a, a really new, cool new food brand uh, focuses in South Asian comfort foods. And so we closed that investment and I had a moment where I was like, this is really interesting. I've been investing in almost 15 years. And this is the first time that, you know, I've championed, like directly invested in a founder, a female founder of South Asian background. Like I, I've invested in other South Asian women through, you know, LP fund commitments. I, for instance, I'm an investor in Our Place and, and T-Drops. Um, but Investing in Umaima was really special for me because, like I said, it was the first time I directly, you know, wrote a, a direct check and championed a South Asian female. And I shared this with Umaima almost in a bit of a joking way and thought, you know, this is kind of funny. When I'm in New York, I was going to be in New York in a few weeks. Uh, I want another company that I work with that's based there. And I said, you know, when I'm in New York, wouldn't it be really fun to get a group of women together, other South Asian founders and consumer and other South Asian investors in consumer, you know, and because I, the other, the other thought I had was not only is this the first time I've directly written a check in a South Asian woman, but I can count on maybe a small hand, like maybe just a couple fingers, how many deals I've done where I've invested alongside other South Asian women. And so it started out as maybe a few of us getting together and, you know, cold email Brianka Chopra Jonas's restaurant and said, you know, we're thinking about doing this and had Brianka Chopra Jonas's co-owner Manish Goyal write me back instantly being like, we'd love to open up the private dining room to you. Like it can fit up to 30 people. And I'm like, whoa, can you really up the ante? Reached out to Anu Dougal, who's the founder of Female Founders Fund and, you know, enrolled her. She agreed to co-host with us. And then all of a sudden, you know, we had these amazing women show up. Um, we had Pyle Kadakia, the founder of ClassPass, Samir Madani, founder of Stax, Deepa Gandhi from Dagny Dover, Shilpa Shah from Kuyana, Amy Jane from Bobble Bar. So these you know, amazing, I would say, highly accomplished South Asian consumer founders. And then we also had this crew of, you know, 
new South Asian uh, founders like Umaima, who had just started Paro and, and a few others. Um, and, and it was really fun. There were, there were investors from Al Catterton, from VMG, and you know all, all of the big firms. It was really, really great. It was a first of its kind event. And for me, it was just really important to create community, right? Like create community amongst, amongst a group of women that you know, maybe hadn't seen as much representation coming up in our own careers. It was a way to sort of turn the page and we can do this now, right? There are enough examples of really strong, successful South Asian consumer founders um, that can inspire this next wave, this next generation of founders coming up so that, you know, like what, what else can we, what else can we do here with, with, with this? And so it was, it was really fun. A lot has come out of it, which has been interesting. I'm speaking with one private equity firm about making this a quarterly series, maybe across different different cities. So that's really fun. Uh, I've been speaking to a number of the women that were at the dinner about a like an angel collective of, of South Asian women and men, you know, invite the dudes too. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, where we can invest in early stage, cons- not just consumer, but South Asian founders. So that's really fun. Um, yeah. So some really fun things have come out of it. A couple of new investment opportunities and, you know, and, and I'm actually working with one of one of the people that I met, one of the women that I met that night, her and her co-founder. I'm I'm helping them right now, too, on something else. So it's just some really cool things came out of it. It's also inspired a few others. I got Umaima sent me a text the other day, there's another dinner, I guess we inspired um, a couple other people that were at the event. They're hosting a dinner in LA at the beginning of June. And like I said, this might end up being a quarterly sort of series with, with a larger venture capital private equity firm. So it's, it's fun that the cool things that have come out of it. So you never know, you think you're going to do a little, a little event, a little dinner, and it can turn into something much bigger. I'm kind of curious as well. Um, you mentioned a few interesting names throughout our conversation and like you kind of being solo with top knot now, how do you really think about like building network? And like, obviously that helps with deal flow and, and finding and finding deals there. I guess I'm just curious, like, is that just something that you've been naturally born with is like, maybe you're a bit more outgoing and you love to build that network or do you have any kind of tricks or things that have helped there? Look for me, I believe that relationships are the currency of life. Like nothing fills my cup more than connecting people, being connected to to individuals that I can either be helpful to, that can be helpful to me, my portfolio companies, my future portfolio companies, who knows, right? I, I really believe that um, success can, one of the, the, the things that I think people that are really successful at are cultivating really strong relationships. And so it's something that I've, you know, I, I think, I think I'm pretty good at it, I get, but it's, it's something that I just really, truly enjoy. Um, like I enjoy, I, I am an outgoing person. Maybe that's a piece of it. But to me, I, I always lead by trying to be helpful. You know, whenever I approach a new relationship, a new network, um, it's less about what you can do for me, but, you know, how can I help you? You know, how can I leverage my networks to help you? And it's obviously very well received. So it's easy to make friends with someone when you approach them from a position of being helpful. Um, but it generally makes me happy too, right? Um, you know, when I meet a company and they're telling me that they're looking for ABC and I know someone that can provide ABC, it, it gets me excited. You know, like it, actually a great example, I was just texting this morning, one of the founders here in Vancouver, um, 
we were having a chat a few weeks ago and he was telling me about how he's looking for fractional CFO. And I'm like, oh, I have someone in my network that would be amazing. And so I connected them and I actually saw her last night. We were at an event together and she's like, thank you so much for that intro to, you know, this person. And I've really been having fun working with them. And I texted them this morning. I'm like, oh, I was with you know, Mackenzie last night. She said she really enjoyed, is really enjoying her time with you. And she's so appreciative of it. And like, that gets me so excited because I've helped out two people, you know, what have I gotten out of it? I don't know. It's just fun to be helpful. It's, it was, it was, it was fun for me to connect them. So those are the kinds of things that, that I guess fill my cup. And maybe that's why I've been a good connector. It's just been fun for me to be helpful. And, and it has come back to me like big time, you know, in, in many different ways. I just think you've got to have a long-term view of it, but have a long-term approach to, to relationships and think about it through that lens. Earlier in the conversation, you, met, you mentioned direct-to-consumer 1.0. I'd love to get your kind of thoughts on what are some trends behind direct to consumer, just consumer in general right now? Um, you know, is it, you know, having to start on e-commerce and you're going to build on Shopify and there's all these tools there. I guess I'm, I'm very curious of like w what wave you think we're on and what kind of trends you're yeah, seeing right I mean, now. I feel like it's funny because I have this conversation with a few people that have amazingly you know, successful brands today, but that rose in that era of where customer acquisition cost was much cheaper, you know, and, and they joke at me about, they're like, I don't think we could do today what we did, you know, six, seven, eight years ago, like no way. So yes, absolutely. The tide has changed. I think that, um, everyone and their mom has a shop on Shopify now. <laughs> that's not, that's not a, a, an advantage anymore. I think I am still a believer in you do have to be solving a problem. You do have to have a really differentiated approach to what you're doing to really stand out in this very crowded industry where barriers to entry are typically quite low. So I think that continues to be something that's prevalent today, just as much as it was 10 years ago. But I think from a channel perspective, brands that I see today that are doing very well have an omni-channel approach on day one, right? It's not just that we're going to it's just too expensive to really build a business purely online now, in, in my opinion, from what I've seen. So I think the idea of going wholesale retail faster, so being, you know, not just online, but having a presence in stores, like be where your customer is. I mean, it's funny, three years ago, there was a conversation around Amazon and like, oh, you don't want to be on Amazon. That's totally brand deteriorating this and that. You're not going to be able to tell your story. But it's like, you know what? That's where your customer is. Like be where your customer is. Customers on Amazon, maybe you should consider being there. You know, when you're an early stage brand, you're still trying to build, you know, that community. I think, and speaking of community, I think that's one thing today that is crucially important, the attention and focus on building a loyal customer base, you know, I think gone are the days where growth at all costs, you know, just acquiring customers left, right, and center. It's like, okay, great. You've acquired them, but how are you keeping them? How are you keeping them engaged? How are you keeping them excited about coming back? How are these individuals turning into your own brand evangelists and supporters and ambassadors? And, you know, what are you doing to cultivate that? And is it showing up in your numbers? Is there strength? Is there evidence of that loyalty? I think that's really important today as well, because um, I don't think, it's too hard to convince a customer to take a shot, especially when you're offering a discount or a promo code or this and that. I mean, you know, we're a little trigger happy consumers. I think as long as your price point isn't too high, right? Like that's a 
that's okay. But how are you keeping them? How are they coming back? You know, how many of your customers are one and dones where they've come once and you've never seen them again? That to me isn't very impressive, right? It's, it's for me, it's the loyalty and are they coming back? I'd love to jump into the quick fire round and I would love to know what your favorite book is. And if you can't pick a favorite, maybe just something you're currently reading or have read recently. Uh, a couple things. My new guilty pleasure is audiobooks <laughs> and biographies. I'm really into it. It feels like People Magazine, but told from the first person. <laughs> so I'm always into a good audio biography and my tastes are rather diversified, I would say. <laughs> Everything from Paris Hilton's memoir, really enjoyed that one, to Huma Abedin, I, I, I recently listened to her audiobook, Cal Penn, that's a great one. So, so that's sort of like my new thing. That's something that I'll, I'll I, I guess you can multitask and do different things, but it's just a fun way to hear unique individuals, unique stories. Um, another book I'm reading right now, I've got to give a shout out to you because it was a recommendation that is slightly, hopefully changing my life a bit with my kids is, um, it's a book called Good Inside. And it is all about, um, you know, it's from Dr. Becky Kennedy and it's, it's all about becoming the parent that you want to be. And, you know, some really, really important and like, gosh, I wish I knew this two years ago, <laughs> tips and tricks for dealing with tantrums, but very relatable. And, um, yeah, it was a recommendation from someone. And so I have a three and a half year old and a two year old, which is like really fun. <laughs> and so it's something that I've been listening to in the background. I'll listen to a chapter here and there, re-listen to chapters here and there. And I find it really, really great tools for dealing with this stage in my life that I'm in, which is challenging to say the least. <laughs> what are you most excited about personally and professionally over the next year? I love being a mom. So personally, seeing my kids grow up, I feel like they change every day. They change so much. Um, yeah, I'm ex Wesley, my youngest, just started really speaking a lot, and uh, and so I'm yeah, I'm looking forward to the next year, just continuing to see him grow and turn into the little human that he's become. And same with Mike, he's really gotten into. Um, I started, I enrolled him in it's called Little Kitchen Academy, so he goes like once every other week or so, and it's. Uh, he's only three and a half years old. He has like his own like little workstation, his little kitchen where he cooks. And it's, it's just so fun to see them evolve and become independent. You know, it, it kind of breaks my heart at the same time, but I've really been enjoying just watching him thrive with, you know, the various activities that he's in and his passions are starting to come out, the things that excite him and getting to know who he is as his own individual. So yeah, I think that's what I'm probably most excited about personally is just continuing to be a mom and watching my kids grow. Uh, professionally, yeah, I mean, I'm really busy right now. I, I, from an angel investing perspective, I, I closed three deals this week, so I've been busy <laughs> writing a lot of checks. I've got to slow down a little bit, um, but some great opportunities are out there, right? Like, I mean, it's it's a it's a tough time in a way to be fundraising, but from an investor standpoint, it's actually kind of a really fun time to be jumping in and, and writing some checks. So excited to see, you know, what else I might be investing in over the course of the next year and just working with some great companies on, you know, their strategic roadmaps and whether it's capital raise or I'm working with one company right now on a really cool strategic combination merger. So that's, that's been really fun. Put back on my investment banking hat and dust off my Excel skills and merger models. <laughs> 
<laughs> talking about synergies again. And yeah, it's, so I'm having, I'm having fun. Super exciting. Uh, and last question before I open up the mic to you, I just love to know, how do you deal with hard times? You've had a long career, you've raised your own fund, you're a parent, what kind of tactics have you learned over your career and life so far? I would say when something feels like a setback, as best I can, as best as you can, for me, it's been, how do I turn this into an opportunity? You know, and I know that's easier said than done, but, you know, for instance, when Campfire was coming apart and, you know, it, it, to me, it was at the time what felt like was potentially like the worst possible thing that could ever happen in my career. However, it ended up being an opportunity for me to rise above and do the right thing by my investors to stick it out and eventually get everybody their capital back through the successful exits um, that we were able to deliver one in particular um, in the end that was able to return the fund. So it's, it's, um, it's for me, it's something may appear to be a setback, but it's really how you deal with the challenge that defines who you are as a person, as an investor, as a partner, and um and and remember that yeah i'd love to open up the mic to you just to chat about anything top knot uh or just just anything you'd want to put out there yeah, i'd love to know from your perspective you know you speak with a lot of founders what would you say is the number one and this will help me just in in, in top knot like What's the one thing that's lacking? What's the one thing yep. that you think needs to be fixed? I mean, you and I were connected actually by a founder that I just wrote a check in, but I, I invested in her. So um, yeah. I don't know if I'm allowed to say what I invested in on your podcast, but yeah, I uh, so the person that you connected with, I, I just invested in her around. And, um, and so, yeah, like, yeah. I mean, I would love to know from your perspective, you here on your end of the challenges on the founder side, you know, in order for me to be a better advisor, investor, consultant like what's what's the pain point that you're hearing loud and clear today so the pain point i hear on the on the founder side is there's not enough okay. investors on the investor side the pain point <laughs> is there's not enough founders so i don't know which i don't think either side is incorrect but there's definitely a gap there i'd say on the on the founder side too when it comes to like investor too i think I think there's needs to be more people like yourself that are operating kind of like a solo capacity, have like a, a singular focus and like shout that focus from the rooftops and like people know, Hey, I need to go talk to this person for like this particular thing. Um, Cause there are like great investors in Canada. I think a lot of them could be viewed as, you know, I don't really know what they invest in, you know, like it's kind of hard to tell. So I think like more solo focus, like very specific. I think that, is a huge advantage because people just know right off the bat, I need to talk to Manic. I like to see more community building. Like with the event you had in New York, uh, I see a lot of more founders craving that. Like I think yeah, totally. Especially coming out of events right? and yeah. conferences. Yeah. Yeah. Events and conferences are great. I, I find a lot of them are like yeah. almost too big though. I find more like what you're saying, just like tight knit founder dinners are very intentional and specific and you reach out to folks because you know that e them in the same room is going to lead totally. to something great. I think seeing more of that is really important and is it, founders are craving it, right? Because, you know, they're so heads down building their business. Um, you know, they're looking to, hey, is there like four other founders like me that I can share like my I journey with? And, you know, like if an investor or an advisor can help with that, like that's huge. 
Um, it's so true. Yeah, those it's are so true. I'm hosting things, a little a, a spring social drinks thing on um, later in June with with several founders here in Vancouver in the consumer space, and it's funny because they've all been pinging me saying the same thing like I don't know why you're doing this but thank you because like you know we're on a slack channel together and like I kind of know him or I kind of know her but really cool to be able to come together and have an excuse and I feel like when someone else does it and facilitates it it makes it a little bit easier too do you know what I mean like it's one thing when like founder A yeah. reaches out to founder B and yep. it's like hey buddy you want to get together for a coffee but when it's like someone like me that's like hey squad let's get together let's have some snacks and some kombucha and be super vancouver um like it's it's different when when it comes yeah. together that way so uh, yeah i definitely feel like there need there needs to be more facilitators to be able to to do that and yeah okay cool that's good that's that's good thank you evan well thank you yeah. so much for having me on this i've had so much fun this has been a fun conversation yeah I appreciate you coming on and sharing your time with me. Yeah, thank you. It was you. a lot of fun. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe, share with friends, and reach out with guest suggestions. Make sure to follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, and subscribe to our newsletter on Substack to keep up to date.